Hello. Hello. Welcome. Welcome to episode 29. And hello and welcome. Here we are. Okay. Do you want to do that again? Because that was a little odd. No, I'm good with it. Okay. Hello and welcome. Hello. Hello. We can move on now. Welcome to episode 29 of the Carrier's Edge podcast. Should I go with like an NPR voice? Hello and welcome to today's episode. I am Mark Morrell, co-founder of Carrier's Edge. And I'm Jane Jezrao, the other co-founder of Carrier's Edge. And now I'm going to get serious about doing a Thank proper you. podcast. I like to mess with Jane a little bit at the beginning of every episode just to lighten things up and get it ready. Okay. And sometimes it works. <laughs> Alrighty then. Let's, uh, so what are we, we talking about today? Well... Yeah, it's weird because both of us were deep into other things yeah. before we came into this. So we're going to try and not talk about any of those other things. Like bloodborne pathogens. Or Don't talk. specific server bug that I discover two minutes before coming down here. No, I'm not going to talk about any of those things. Really? Do you want me to talk about a specific server bug that no, I found? No, no. It's related to encryption and email addresses. Did you tell people? Are they fixing it? Yeah, they get the notice the same as I do. Oh, okay. So it's probably fixed already. Okay. It's just, uh, yes, big excitement in server land for us because last night we went live with a whole pile of new code. Uh, I think it was like 30 or 35 cards from our Kanban board that got moved from the ready to go live to the done column. And that thing is, is a whole lot faster well, that's not even... It's not even... Yeah, that's separate. Yeah. So I'm so, very happy about that. A lot of uh, a lot of new things that have uh, gone live for us, new features, new functionality, bug fixes, and a lot of stuff that if all goes well, people will never, ever notice. So... Um, and that's what you like for well, when for you things. have a, you know, software as a service, you have a web-based application, you kind of don't want people to notice things. You don't want, yes. to, want them to notice anything. They, you just want them to be able to do what they're going to do. do things. Yeah. The whole thing should really just get yeah. out of their way. Yeah. But so. we made a bunch of changes to the, uh, some of the underlying code, um, not quite at an architectural level, but sort of at a middle tier level. All and right. That enables greater scaling and development speed and efficiency down the road, but it should be exactly the same functionality for customers. So, so they shouldn't notice it. Basically, we can get bigger and no one notice. Well, it's easier. It will be easier for new developers to come in to pick up um, the the code base and start working on it, and also quicker for our existing developers to work through things. Easier, and so for they debugging. can have more time paying attention to the course developmental make it easier for them to build new features more quickly yes for me now yes. i know it's for customers i don't get Everything any new is for customers i know eventually. and yes you know, directly or indirectly but i'm really looking forward to having some some dedicated developer time um it's coming your stuff is starting to look very good the resource management system. Resource management, um, which, yeah, that was a fail on my part when I originally designed the course, course Way back when, functions. when you didn't know what you were doing. No, I, I kind of knew what I was doing, but we were moving from one problem to a solution, which we had, you know, the, the way we were doing things before was clunky and you ended up with tons of duplicate resources and things like that that were a real nightmare to manage. So we moved to a different system and 
solved that main problem. So we don't have duplicate resources and we don't have the issue of the same page in 10 different courses Mm -hmm. anymore. Um, We're able to share things better that way. But we have another challenge, which is that the design for uh, the tools to manage individual resources like images and movies, primarily those two, but to a lesser extent sounds as well, didn't really consider the huge volume of those things that you create. So we end up with way too many of them in certain places and it needs to be organized a lot better. I think that that's always the thing. You know, you never, when you have a small version of anything, like when the internet first started getting used by people, when Netscape Navigator came out way back when in the mid 90s or the early 90s, you know, there were a small amount of people and there were a few web pages. And so, you know, Yahoo is like, okay, we'll list all the web pages uh, on our homepage and, yeah. and we'll categorize them. You can just them. add your, yours to the page. And yeah, the, the yeah. homepage, I think it was actually the Netscape homepage when you launched the browser had new pages added. Yeah. That was basically, here's new pages added to the internet. And so it was really small and it was pretty manageable. And I remember the same thing happened when Facebook started getting popular. Mm -hmm. So when I first uh, got onto Facebook, you know, there were four other people I knew on there. And and then we found more and more of them and, but not everybody was on it. And, you know, people were still saying, what is that Facebook thing? And now everybody's on it and all kinds of bad behavior is happening. Mm -hmm. And now every, everyone has a web page and everybody's competing with, you know, you know, for views and things like that. So when it's small, you don't realize what the problems are going to be when it's big, Yeah, not even huge. Well, you know it's going to scale in certain ways, but there's always unforeseen, places, yeah, that are unforeseen, uh, and that certainly happened to us. And as you add more course developers, and the volume of content mm-hmm. being produced goes up. Um, you know, I we know. Have to, I'm. I'm. Well, I've doubled my course developers now. Yeah. So, so that's gonna I'm make going it. to have some sort of. I don't know. I'm going to have to see what my unforeseen consequences are because (laughs) we really have to scale up because I can't do it. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's kind of difficult. I, you know, I want to be able to have my hands and everything and I'm going to have to, you know, step back and say, no, you guys can figure it out yourselves and I'm going to go and, you know, help do these other things. So the scaling up is, it is weird because when we were younger and we were working in companies that scaled up really fast, we saw those problems. And yeah. and it's, you know, you have your own company and you're like, okay, that's never happening we're here. Gonna, yeah, we're not going to have those problems. We're going to be so efficient and I don't know, but it's like it well, sneaks up on you. Well, you solve those specific problems. Yeah, all the <laughs> ones that you've encountered before. And then you have new ones. Yeah, all of that goes away. But then you, yeah, have other ones that aren't really foreseen. So... Uh, we're getting there. I, I know what we want to do, and it's kind of built um, the tools to give you the support that you need. The trick is, this is the other thing that's often just as tough as solving the problem, is how do you get to a point where everything is moved over into that? Because we've got a new tool for managing resources for you that works beautifully and you guys have lots of personalization options and it's efficient and all of that other stuff. But we've got this mountain of other resources 
from everything else up till now that aren't in that. So we've got to make sure that we move everything over and don't lose anything along the way. And that's the challenge for a lot of not just um, coding solutions or development solutions, but just a, a lot of sort of business tools that you build in order to make things better. You got to make sure that you don't break other things or lose things along the way when you're transitioning from one to another. So that's where we're actually spending a lot of the time right now. Um, didn't take that long to build the tools for managing resources the way you want them. What's killing us is making sure that nothing gets lost in the migration to it. Yeah. And I think that's just going to be, to a certain extent, we're going to lose something. Hopefully, we're nearly there. Hopefully it's not going to be very major. No, we're nearly there. And the way it's working, we can see all of the ones that get missed because they just didn't get moved. Yeah. So we can go in and look at why. And every time we do a pass through that, we're able to uh, shrink the number that get missed. Although, you know, we could do it manually. Like, I know. No. The problem with doing it manually, number one, is there's still a large number of them. There's mm-hmm. 1,500 images. And that's before we get to movies. Okay. I suppose that my time is better spent doing so. Everybody's time is better spent. <laughs> But also you want to understand why it didn't move because right. there may be a larger problem that needs to be yeah, addressed. That's true. So that's, that's true. what we're working on. But um, last night we pushed live not only the functional changes for some of the lower layers, but also some new features that have been very close to being finished for a while. And one of them, which is really a very simple one, but adds so much power, and that is the ability to schedule things um, to appear certain number of days after being assigned. So I probably talked about this in a previous uh, podcast because it was on my mind a lot as we were building it. But we had the ability before to have a program that would appear on a certain calendar date, which is great for doing like monthly refresher stuff. So on the first of the month, the thing appears. And what we wanted to add to that is the ability to have things appear not on a fixed calendar date, but a rolling date dependent on when you get assigned to something. So you're assigned to it today, but it's scheduled to appear a week later or two weeks later. Right. Um, And it's actually in some ways not that complicated to build. Tricky to test because you've got to build these things and set these things. Yeah, and run them out and make sure that email goes out on time for notification and all that other stuff. So um, that's now finished in live, but it sort of closes... It's the fourth piece of a, uh, a puzzle, I guess, around automation of programs. Because we could set, now we can set programs to appear either on a rolling date or a fixed calendar date. And we can have deadlines that are either a fixed calendar date or a rolling date. So you could have, without a lot of uh, administrative effort required, you could have programs that appear, automatically appear on a certain schedule and disappear on another schedule as well. So that would work really well for orientation and post-orientation. I know that it's it'll work for, you know, all ongoing training, but if you think about orientation where it's like, okay, do this, now do this, now do this, and you can have space between all of those yep. items to do rather than having everything appear and overwhelm people. Yeah, and I was also thinking about it very... Uh, very early on when we started doing surveys because you often want surveys to appear oh. at a certain point. 
So this allows you to have a survey, you know, for your orientation thing. Yeah, you've got the different courses that appear, but you might have a program that is just follow-up surveys. So you can do the 30 days after orientation, the survey automatically appears. Or do the seven days. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what it is that people do. Yeah, a week after and a month after, yeah. like all of that kind of stuff can be set up to automatically happen. And it's rolling dates based on when that individual starts. So all you would, I mean, if you wanted to do an annual survey on a regular basis, so you would set up the program. Set it up to appear. 365 days in the future. And then you could do a different, you just replace the survey, but Mm -hmm. because you're putting it in a training program and just, you know, it just appears. Well, do that and actually combine that with the, um, the expiry and renewal stuff and, and the limits. So you could set it. So you have a thing. The first thing appears a year after somebody starts. So on their anniversary and they get one time to do the survey and then it kind of locks, but it's got a one year renewal. So a year later it pops up and reminds them that they need to do it again. And actually a month before that, they would automatically get an email notice reminding them that, um, they need to redo this thing. And then if they haven't done it, they would see, uh, um, in, um, uh, they'd see another message a week before it was due and then they just go in and do it and it just keeps running through that schedule. Yeah, That's cool. That's yeah. cool. So we that have, was from, um, customer requests, wasn't it? Well, it was a customer request that kind of pushed it over the edge because I had it on the to-do list ever since we did surveys. I knew that was something I wanted to do. Uh, because people often want surveys on fixed period after somebody starts, but it just didn't make the cut for the initial thing because it really wasn't a survey related thing. It's just a general change to the way programs get scheduled. Right. So when a customer requested it, it's like, all right, now we can justify doing it. <laughs> so so well, that's live and very exciting. That's uh, yeah, that's very cool. Are you doing a what's new in CE webinar at some point? March, the March webinar. And that Tommy's doing that, right? Yeah, it's going to be all product stuff and it's going to go through those things. Okay, so if you're listening to this and you want to know what we're talking about because we're talking about functionality stuff, then go on our website and sign up for the webinar in March, which and it's, what is it now, the end of February, so it's going to be soon. Yeah, it's a couple of weeks. Is it? Is the webinar is when we're at the TCA convention? Yes. Okay. Well, actually, I don't know if I want them to go to the webinar. I want them to watch the... The Facebook Live presentation. Uh, well, on that's March on 11th. Monday. That's on Monday. The webinar is on Tuesday. Okay. All right. Then you can fit both in. That's good. Good scheduling Although, on our part. Well, it is possible that the webinar at one o'clock Eastern, ten o'clock Pacific. Now it'll be just it'll be overlapping a little bit with your general session. Well, we're not recording that, so unless uh, you're not there, broadcasting that live, right? Unless you're okay. there, you're. Yeah. Although I'm very excited. I am excited about my general session panel because, well, should I talk about that? It seems we are talking about it. Okay. So um, I have a panel of best fleets. I have three uh, members of the best fleets, uh, the top 20s, um, Central Oregon Truck Company, Garner Trucking, and Boyle Transport. And what is cool is what I really, we're talking about strategic strategic plans and execution and transitioning from, uh, you know, leadership transition and things like that. So we're talking a lot about leadership, which comes up is is part of the best fleets, 
you know, Best Fleets often tends to look like a recruiting program. It's not really because you can't be on the top 20 with just recruiters. Like recruiters can try and go through the process all themselves, but you need so much executive buy-in that leadership is really required to, to, to become a top 20. So this is kind of what we're talking about. And what I realized kind of after a couple of weeks of planning this was that all of my panelists are members of Generation X, Hmm. which is like the most underserved or or underappreciated generation of all. The forgotten, under unwanted, you know, get out of the way. And I really enjoyed that. Well, once I figured it out, I was like, oh, I got to say something about this. So I've been doing a little bit of research into Generation X and and what, you know, what they bring to the table um, as opposed to the boomers and millennials. And because those two groups are so huge, uh, it's like 68 million of boomers and 78 million millennials compared to, I think it's like 23 million or 30 million uh, Gen Xers. So we have never gotten any attention, really. We're like in the middle seat of an airline being squished yeah. by the people around us. We're the, the un- like the middle, we've got middle child syndrome as a generation. <laughs> and I don't think um, people who are members of the boomers or the millennials, I don't think they realize how much middle child syndrome we have. I don't think Gen Xers even realize it until, until you start talking about it. It's like, yeah, hey. We're just so used to it. I know. We've been used to being ignored, and we just go and do spectacular things anyway. Well, you made a a good comment when we were talking about it a a week or so ago about how uh, it's Generation X is so ignored, we didn't even get a proper name for our generation. (laughs) We have the baby boomers, we have the millennials, and we're just X. Yeah. Yeah. Some unnamed generation in between. There is, if you do a little bit of research, you can see that there was some attempt to name us. And one of the first names was Baby Bust. Oh, yeah. I remember that. We were the Baby Bust. I remember also somebody writing a book referring to us as the 13th generation because this was the 13th generation since the Mayflower or something like that in the U.S., which is very specific, but... Well, these generations tend to revolve around the U.S. and the the starting and end dates and things like that. But, you know, remember when we were younger, just so everyone listening knows that Mark and I are both members of Generation X. We are full card-carrying Gen Xers. And what I remember was that there were all of these names for the boomers as they were going through their different stages of life. So remember they were... uh, um, so they were preppies for, oh, they were hippies first. Yeah, they were dirty when hippies. We were, when we were being conceived and born and things like that in the 60s. And then they were, they, they some were of them yuppies. were yuppies, which the was... The me um, generation. No, what was yuppies stood for? Young, up and... Well, there's variations, but it was young, urban, professional, yeah. or young, upward, me, mo- upwardly mobile professional. Yeah, so they were yuppies. Hippies, yuppies, and then... Uh, can't remember what else they were called, but they had a couple of different names. And then they were, you know, everybody's all concerned about the boomers because, you know, what are we going to do to provide in their old age and blah, blah, blah. And they wouldn't get out of the jobs. Like, you know, <laughs> when we problem. came up, when we came up and we were sort of in our 20s, there were, you know, they didn't quit. You know, all of a sudden oh, they were working into their 70s. 
And well, they weren't 70 then, but they weren't retiring. So any of the traditional jobs that you had, you couldn't get into because they weren't gone anywhere. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, and this is like in the early 90s, there was a recession then too. Poor us. Too bad. Well, beginning of the 90s there was, yeah. Yeah. Well, 1991 was when I graduated. Yeah. So, and you had all of these boomers that were at that point sort of prime earning peak, sort yeah. of in their 30s and early 40s. And yeah, they're not getting out of the way for anybody. But even no. by the end of the 90s, that was still a challenge. Because 10 years later, yeah. there's still a bunch of them there. There's a giant mass of them. There's still a giant mass of them. I know. They won't leave. I know. So this is why I'm really happy to have this panel of Gen Xers, which I didn't even realize they were until I kind of looked at them all. And um, until after I talked to each of them and each of them said to me, you know, I have I have a lot of really strong ideas, but there's a lot of people in that audience who probably aren't going to agree with me or not going to like that. And I'm like, you know what, that's exactly what the industry needs. Yeah, We're going to we talk about it. But then I was thinking that. um that is typical of our generation. We are, because we were ignored and we had to go our own way, there's a couple of things that Gen Xers do a lot. And one of them is get into tech. We were the first one. We didn't invent tech, but we were the ones who decided what to do with it. So Netscape, we were talking about Netscape in the early 90s and that first, you know, here's the new web pages. That was a Gen Xer. Mm-hmm. Um Google, are gen, the founders are Gen Xers. Uh, like any, except for Facebook, a lot of the other major software, um, you know, the big guys in software, the founders Internet are- companies. Yeah, sure. they're Gen Xers. And now Apple and Microsoft, those are obviously well, that's boomers. that's previous generation. But yeah. But that, those were the ones that sort of uh, established the computer industry, but taking the internet industry- into the stratosphere. That was Gen Xers. And what's interesting is everybody talks about how the millennials are these native users of technology, but no one ever mentions the fact that Gen Xers were the ones who created well, a, a lot of those things that millennials are using. And Gen Xers, part of that is that they have that outsider's view. So they saw these computers and saw this internet thing that was starting to have a little bit of traction and said, hang on, we can do this with it. What about doing this other thing here? Whereas the millennials, they just don't know a world that doesn't have that. So it's a very different perspective. Yeah, they're referred to as digital natives because they've never lived in a world without full-time internet. But that means they don't have that outsider perspective. They don't have that opportunity to kind of look at it and say, well, maybe if we tweaked it like this, it would work better. And that's really where the Gen Xers have uh, had success. And I think that's part of what your panel is talking about is they, even though all three of them come from trucking family, they all sort of went out and did something else. And they come in with this um, sort of outsider's mentality just through generational differences and say, well, I don't think that works. Let's do it differently. And they've got some crazy ideas as a result. Uh, I Yeah, I totally agree. I think what also happened is because we were kind of shut out, kind of like the millennials were shut out of traditional jobs. So you can't get a, you know, there are no real career paths for, you know, when we are coming up. So 
we kind of thought, oh, this is cool. What about this? And kind of went into technology and started deciding what to do with technology. But also Gen X is the most entrepreneurial generation out of mm. the three. Uh, now, I mean, there, there's still some silent generation going on, but they're not really in the workforce. But uh, 55% of entrepreneurs tend to be Gen I read that stat somewhere. I can't remember where, but tend to be it tends uh, to be highly Gen X and it's that whole thing is like, well, okay, I can't, hmm. you know, I can't get a job here. What am I going to do? Well, how about yeah. if I play with this tech? Or well, I these guys won't get out of the way for me to get promoted. Yeah. So I'll go start my own thing. Exactly. Yeah. And that's kind of what happened with us. You know, we thought we figured that we could do it better. Well, we just hated working with everybody. Well, no, we didn't hate working with people. We hated working for people ah. because we thought we could do it better. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Well, we saw, I, I think it's that same outsider viewpoint where we, say, where we look at it and say, well, why are we doing it like that? And yeah. the answer was invariably because that's how we do it here, which but, is never a yeah. good answer. Well, we also were working, no, uh, we worked We worked with a lot of other Gen Xers at PricewaterhouseCoopers, but we worked with baby. Yeah, but they were always being directed by Bye. boomers. But anyway, we decided that this was, this was a very Gen X thing to do. We don't like what's happening, so let's go do our own thing. Mm-hmm. It's, let's go and see if we can do it better. Sometimes you don't do it better, but I think we did it. <laughs> there are many things <laughs> yet, we had, we've discovered we don't do better. Yeah, but we tried. Mm-hmm. So it's a very, uh, it's an interesting look at what you know, just how Gen Xers approach things a little bit differently and how we approach what we do for our younger generation. Because mm-hmm. we're approaching them differently than our parents or the older generation did with us. Mm-hmm. The older generation was like basically, you know, like it or lump it. A lot of us lumped it. and Or sorry, yeah, a lot of us left because we didn't like it. And... Um, and that's why we're so entrepreneurial. But for us and the millennials, it's a little bit different relationship because we, we're not digital natives, but we understand technology. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, we did have it when we started early. Like, I don't know how old you were when video games started really becoming a thing. Mm, I'm going to say it was probably 10. Yeah, I was but. in high school. Oh, like those kind of video games. Yeah, like the original ones, like, like the Pong. arcade. Oh. Um, Remember, you could, the, you know, the first time you played a video game at someone's house, you were probably between yeah, ten and fifteen. Yeah, yeah, and that was it. Was you know, when you learn it as a kid, it's not like you, you, you weren't. I don't know. I consider myself a digital native, even though I'm not part of. I'm not in that generation, but I loved it from the first time I saw it. We were also the MTV generation, so we were able to watch video rock music videos all day. The and rock all and night. roll yeah. music videos all day. <laughs> it's gonna rot your brains. Well, I think what's different there. You may be a tech native, or you may feel that tech is in the bones, but. It's been this continuing process of discovering new thing, absorbing it, getting used to it, and then it gets replaced by another new thing. Like you're talking about video games at somebody's house. Those were not connected. They were standalone. They were very simple games, um, very different from today. Like the digital native kids of today, everything is connected all the time. They don't have to 
think about an answer to something because they have the world's information at their fingertips. It's a very different approach to knowledge and problem solving and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, we grew up in a world that still had Encyclopedia Britannica, you know, or World Book Encyclopedia. World Book. All of those. Is there like a Collier's Encyclopedia? uh, Grolier's is one you're thinking of. Uh, But yeah, we actually had those and you knew somebody who had the full set and that was like a big, that was an accomplishment. That meant that you were a serious, knowledgeable person and (laughs) you were focused on education because you had a set of encyclopedias that wasn't 30 years old. It was a modern one. Oh God, we never had that. No, I didn't have that either because we were not serious, successful people. (laughs) Well, even the library. My mother was a teacher. Yeah, but even the libraries didn't have them all that often. You know, they had one maybe five years old. They're not getting a new version every year. That's true. That's what the companies wanted. But yeah, and you had to know how to reference an Mm -hmm. encyclopedia article. I don't think they know how to do that. They don't ever reference encyclopedia articles anymore. Yeah, because there are no, well... I don't even, I'd have to go and see if there's a website for it. Probably is. Yeah. I'm sure they're selling subscriptions or something now. But I wonder if the founder of Wikipedia was Gen X. Uh, I think he is. I bet you. Yeah. I see, think no he one is. ever talks about that. Like all of the people who have completely disrupted technology, because we yeah. did. You know, who, the audacity of somebody thinking that you could put an encyclopedia online and have anybody edit it that wanted to do it. And give it away for free. And just have it, yeah. Yeah. Like, who would have, that is a Gen X idea. Yeah. Which which made everybody angry and, well, made half the world angry and the other half go, ooh, really? Yeah, they use it every day. (laughs) Yeah. And everybody now, now we have to teach all the, uh, you know, the people who come after us, okay, this, here's how you use it properly. (laughs) Yeah. Because it's a, it's a, it's a can of worms. So is that what your panel is going to talk about? No, that's why we're talking about it now, because it's really just my introduction. And okay. then we're going to be talking about... So all this is going to get boiled down to like three minutes. Yeah, and I really wanted to talk... I mean, I could talk about it for, you know, two hours and, you know, just go into the the whole... the. The uh, the movies of that the John oh who's the guy that made like Pretty in Pink and all of the oh, breakfast John Hughes. John Hughes movies and how they affected the generation and <laughs> uh, unintentional racism uh, and all of that that kind of ended up in those remember the uh, there were some movies that were a little ugh, you look at it now and go hmm but yeah that's I really like the topic, but no, that's not what the panel's going to talk about. They're going to be talking about how, basically, how they have come, how they've developed as leaders, what they think the the major issues are in trucking, what they are doing to make sure that those issues are being are being dealt with, how they develop their teams, and how they are transitioning leadership to other people in the uh, in the organization. So it will be really interesting because there's some very, um, it's very interesting. Uh, my panelists are interesting people. They're definitely interesting people and they're on the best fleets top 20 list for a reason. They, you know, they have some really good ideas about how to treat people and how to develop people. And, uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Can you share any of the things that they're going to say? Any teasers of the, uh, the details that they're going to be providing? 
Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I want to really go into it. I know that they're going to be talking about the driver shortage and and how, you know, you can't combat the driver shortage on your own and how what they're doing to try and include other other entities like hmm. shippers and uh, other customers into that mix and trying to uh, make it more of a concerted effort to improve the industry um, as a whole, not just having trucking companies have to improve it. How are we, how are they um, working to involve other, the other parts of it? Um, I'm trying to think because I've had a bunch of things that uh, have been Basically, you know, you focus on one thing and then you change focus and then you forget all the other stuff that you yep. did. Exactly. But that's a little bit about what it, about what it is. But also the idea of talking about transition, there's a really interesting contrast between two of my panelists about their experiences moving into the roles of leader from an older generation and one where it was a good transition and one where it was not a good transition and that, that oh. difference. Yeah. It's like, I was like, Oh, this is That'll cool. Be very cool. Cause I think another thing about Gen X is the relationships with their parents. And I haven't done any research on this, but this is what I, I have a theory that many Gen Xers have problematic relationships with their parents. Hmm. And so when you were inheriting a leadership position that can be a, a real, you know, if you don't have a good relationship with the parent who's giving you their company, uh, it can lead to problems. Hmm. Yeah, that should be an interesting section. Well, we're not going to talk. Yeah, it, yeah, that's the last section of it. So it's, uh, but it's uh, very cool. And we're talking to talk about uh, like involvement in different in industrial issues, um, or not industrial, but it, it, the industry issues. So one of them is um, Sherry Garner Bramba, who's um, the president of Garner Trucking, is going to be talking about her involvement with Truckers Against Trafficking because she uh, has a really strong uh, relationship with them and is working on the DOT advisory panel. Mm, that should for be that. cool. Yeah. So. That's uh, that's pretty much what my panel is going to be on, but I'm pretty excited about it. And also, I'm going to be presenting the Best Fleets Awards, so yeah. that'll be fun. Very good. But I do, I've do i done that a few times, so now this is new. The yeah. general session is a new thing for me. So, Well, I've just finished laying out the results book, dum, dum, dum. getting all the content for that. I'm going through the, the paranoia of double-checking all the numbers and all of that stuff to make sure that I've got the questions and all the scores correct. Um, but uh, that part is is done, and I've just finished all the editorial that goes along with that, which is for each different category, uh, summarizing the changes that we saw, what things are new, uh, places where everybody seems to be standardizing on certain things. And one of the things that I did new this year, which kind of surprised we haven't done it in any past years, is have a section in the results book that talks about the summary of the driver survey. I uh, know, yeah. When you mentioned it to me, I was like, oh yeah, why don't we do that? Why haven't we ever done that before? Well, this year we had nearly 8,400 driver surveys submitted. And because... That is a significant amount. Oh yeah, a lot more than, than we've had in the past. Year. But 
just as important is the fact that we do this every year. And a lot of these questions are very consistent from one year to another because it's still a valid question to ask. So we can look at sort of differences. What is driver sentiment this year versus last year and things like that. So I know that's not going to be representative of the industry as a whole because it's not a wide enough um, cross-section, but it does give us a good sense, certainly of all of the people that are participants in the program, what the general sentiment is among those drivers. And I find that very interesting, looking at them as a group to see the things that are kind of the same, regardless of whether it's a top 20 fleet or just another finalist, or things that are sort of very different among the top 20 compared to other people. And also I notice with the driver surveys, I haven't looked at this year's, but in past years I have, where it doesn't matter what they're an owner-operator or a driver or whatever um, industry you're working for, whatever kind of, you know, you flat better or refrigerated or it doesn't matter. It's the same. They have the same commentary. Yeah. There's a lot of commonality across them. So what I found interesting this year, looking at these results, is in general, drivers weren't unhappy about pay. So we've asked that question every year, and we have a few different questions in that subject. It's like, are you compensated fairly? Do you think the model works for you? Do you feel that extra time is compensated? And like all of this kind of stuff, and is it clear how you're paid and how compensation is calculated, all of these kind of things. And overall, they're pretty happy. Um, I don't remember the exact percent off the top of my head, but it's something like 83% of uh, the drivers surveyed would recommend the company to uh, somebody else. A significant number, like similar to that number, want to stay there the rest of their career. So they're like happy. They're planning to stick around. Uh, And they felt that the compensation model was working for them. The company was paying them fairly. All of that stuff was good. That's great. Mm-hmm. I think the best flu, the top 20 in particular, have done a lot of work on that. Well, what I always find interesting about that, and that's a consistent number with what we've seen in past years. They're generally pretty happy with pay and the way the system works for pay. But it strikes me every year because the best fleets are never the best paying fleets. There's always, <laughs> there's always people out there that pay way more. And so the best fleets, they're competitive. They're not at the bottom of the range, but they're not at the top either. They're sort of, you know, in the upper part of the middle range. But yet drivers aren't unhappy about that. Also interesting, and I don't know what it is this year, but the breakdown of the people who did the service, because I know a lot of new drivers do the surveys. Um, like uh, people new to the industry. That. I had a look at that, and it was a pretty good breakdown. Uh, there's more people in the industry that have got five years, 10 years experience, those kind of things. And there's more of them doing the surveys. So I haven't looked to see if our demographic breakdown matches the industry, but it looks fairly close just at first glance. Although we do have, uh, I looked at it before about the number of women who completed it versus the number of men and a higher percentage of women. Definitely. Like, so the industry has around 5% women drivers, but I think that the percent of women who completed the survey was closer to seven or eight. Yes. I, I always suspected that it was higher. Mm-hmm. And because uh, I think that women are more interested in providing feedback 
because they have. Be. I think that women tend because women are coming in. It's a traditionally male industry, so women are going to have more feedback. They're mm-hmm. going to have more to say about what they would like to see changed or what they like. Yep. So it's natural. It's not necessarily it's a woman thing. It's a it's that outsider. Yeah. yeah. So just like Gen X, if you had a bunch of Gen Xers coming into trucking, we'd have a whole bunch of things to say as well. Well, there was a couple of things that I found very interesting in places where companies did relatively poorly. Not that they did objectively bad, but bad compared to other things. And there's a lot of commonality there across all the fleets. Really? So there's a couple of places where every fleet does worse. And I found that very interesting. One of them is the whole issue of how the company determines routing. Um, And we've had this question for a while. Forever. Yeah, forever. And yeah, drivers just, it's more, the responses are more neutral than agree or disagree. So it's not that they don't like the way the company does routing. They're just more neutral than what we see elsewhere. But in the comments, you see a lot of comments about how I don't understand how they do it. They play favorites. You never know what's going to happen from one week to another. Like those kind of things that suggest a lot of confusion and a lot of uh, sort of misunderstanding about it. But just as interesting is on the company side, we actually stopped scoring that question this year because everybody is pretty much doing the same thing. Everybody has got some system where they're looking at proximity, available hours, driver preferences, and a whole bunch of other metrics and determining who's going to do what load based on that. And they also all talk about having a fair bit of effort to make sure it's fair and consistent and communicate to drivers what they want and give them opportunities to uh, turn down things they don't want. But yet from the driver perspective, it's still a black box that they don't really understand. I find that very fascinating. Uh, Another one that sort of came up as kind of a weaker area, and I think it's actually two things that fit together. One is the question about having opportunities to provide input on decisions that affect them. Right. So do you feel that the company gives you ample uh, opportunity to provide your input on something that affects you? And related to that is the question about company meetings being effective. You know, does the company have uh, meetings that are effective for you? Because if you've got effective meetings, you're giving people an opportunity to provide input. You think not, yeah, that's it the be, idea. I mean, yeah. the definition of meeting is a two-way discussion. Right. Uh, so, Our definition of meeting no, is a two-way discussion. I looked up in the dictionary. Oh, is it? Is yes. a dictionary definition? Okay. Yeah. Otherwise, it's not a meeting. It's a lecture. Ah. So a meeting, you know, if the company is doing the meeting properly, then they're going to be providing good opportunity for drivers to provide input. The companies, and, and this is actually one where there is distinction between the companies that are investing in sort of modern meeting tools, mm-hmm. online stuff, conference calls, things like that, versus the ones that are still trying to do an in-person meeting periodically. Uh, those ones, definitely, drivers do not feel like they're, like the meetings the are effective. in-person meetings? Yeah. They don't, well, if that's the only option. Oh, okay. Um, compared to the people that are tr- providing a variety of different tools. So the ones that will do a live meeting and broadcast it on Facebook Live for instance, right. they get a higher score in terms of um, meeting effectiveness from drivers, but also drivers feel like they have more chance for an input. So those two things sort of work together. If you get a higher score on the meeting question or a higher response rate from drivers on the meeting question, they typically have 
higher or better response on the question about providing input. I have a theory about that. Which is that if you ask people for their input in a meeting, it'll work better? No, not necessarily. But with Facebook Live, you have the option of putting your thoughts down like you can write them down. Mm -hmm. So you can do it live, you can do it as it's happening, but you can do it afterwards as well. So when you do an in-person meeting, if you get new information that you can't really, uh, you're sort of processing it, you're not necessarily going to have any questions or any input. So you have the meeting, you go home, you talk to your spouse or some of your friend about it or your coworker and, and go, and then you realize, hey, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. But the meeting is gone. So yeah. there's that extra step of like, how do I, who do I call? What yeah. do I say? Are they going to believe me? But with Facebook Live. The discussion can, continues. Yeah. So you can always, and what will happen is the person, so the meeting, the live part is over and someone has that conversation and comes back the next day, watches the clip or whatever it is, and then puts down a question. Mm-hmm. That question goes directly to whoever is administering it and that person will know, either know the answer or will be able to direct it. So there's always that that opportunity for people to have that ongoing mm-hmm. discussion whereas they didn't in yeah, a live in meeting. a live thing, it's speak now or forever hold your peace. Yeah, and I really just thought of that, that meetings are nice to have as a interaction with people, but if you're going to give people new information, you have to give them the ability to somehow follow up. Mm-hmm. It's not a, okay, we're done now, we've all had lunch, and bye. Well, that's why I think a lot of people that have really effective live meetings have staff do prep work in advance. So they give you a heads up that this is what we want to talk about. Go and look at this, think about it, all of that kind of stuff. And and then when you get in there, everybody's sort of ready. They have that opportunity. They've had a chance to think about it. Like we always talk about in our, our webinars about best practices around training is have people do the online training in advance of the live meeting. Right. Then that gives them time to digest the content and think about it. And then when they get in there, you can have a more meaningful discussion about it. And the same kind of thing, whether it's a reading, you know, there's a new policy or there's something new changing, have a look at it in advance, then we'll discuss it here. Even just an agenda. Mm-hmm. Agendas are, you know, you have a meeting, you're like, oh, I've got to create an agenda. But it's, it's helpful for everybody who doesn't know what you're going to talk about. Yeah. Now there's times where you're going to surprise them with things and you don't put that on the agenda. But if there's something where there's a benefit to people talking about it or thinking about it in advance and maybe even talking amongst themselves before they get in there, then it really improves the effectiveness of it. Yeah, there's a bunch of different ways to make meetings better. And having less of them, I think, is, well, depending on your, depending on what you do. But um, I like the way that we do meetings because we do them on a regular basis, but it's not all the time. Mm-hmm. Because I don't, the people who are constantly in meetings drive me up the wall. It's like, what are you doing? Like, do you do any work? Yeah. Do you do who, anything? Who's, who's finishing all the work, all the action items that come out of these meetings? I know. And if there aren't action items coming out of these meetings, why, why are you, are you having, having a meeting? Yeah. But that's a rat hole because I, everybody I goes a, on about meetings. That's a whole other rat hole. That's a whole other uh, podcast that we could do. Meetings? Yeah. The well, awfulness I, of meetings and how to do it right. Yeah, we have very few meetings. Yeah, uh, as a well, as a company and as a 
basically with anybody. We do a lot of phone calls, but not a lot of meetings. Yeah, so before we head down that rat hole, we can probably park that one and do it in another one, but I think we are probably at a good point to wrap it up because we're both about to take off in different directions. (laughs) This will end up being the longest podcast episode ever. So, um, So quick updates on what's coming in the near future. We've got the convention coming up in two weeks. And at some point during that time, we are going to finish all the prep work for the convention and then realize that there is other things happening as well. But at this moment, I imagine it's, neither of us can really think about much of those. Well, I'm doing, I've done a lot of my prep work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm thinking about courses and thinking, So, but I also have a webinar that I'm doing with the TCA where I will have a couple of the top 20 talking about their retention practices. And that will be on April 11th. And you can go to the TCA website uh, and find information on that. Um, I am also, so for courses, we have Bloodborne Pathogens that's going to be coming out. Is think, it coming out before the next webinar or before the next uh, podcast? I'd like three to, weeks yeah, so? I'd like to do that. We have it pretty, like we have the storyboard done and it's short, so okay. the audio shouldn't take long and we're not going to have to go and do a photo shoot. So cool. I think we could do this. Um, so there you heard it, people. By the next episode of the podcast, <laughs> which is currently scheduled to be recorded the day after we come back from the convention. Oh, so maybe not. Anyway, well, although it's not me doing it, so we'll have yeah. to see. Uh, I also have my ongoing uh, Weights and Dimensions course, which is, it's getting closer. This is a, this is a nightmare course. Mm-hmm. Um so I can imagine how nightmarish it must be to try and have your people all manage it. Okay. And I've got a bunch of other stuff that I'm working on. Um, at the top of that list being a giant server move. Because now that we've done a huge push of new code, we actually are moving to all new server hardware as well. It's be so much faster. Which I'm hoping to have done next week. I'm sure there are lots of other things as well, but I can't think of them. I know. So I'm going to just say thanks for listening. (laughs) Have a good day. We will be regrouping after the convention uh, again, but in the meantime, I'm it. I'm done. Okay. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye.